Element is a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means that there's lots of salt and no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to any diet or lifestyle. For me, I drink Element all day, every day. I put it in just about every single drop of water that I drink. For me, it feels like it helps keep me full. It helps give me more energy. And I feel like water is absorbed better by the body when it has element in it. It truly feels like magic to me. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you use drinkelement.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkelement.com slash pretty intense. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Long one for you today, but if you're interested at all in the nature of reality, I think you'll stay tuned. Today, the guest is Dr. Robert Gilbert. He has a PhD in international studies. He was also a U.S. Marine Corps instructor in the field of nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare defense. I think that just means smart. Um, and that's what you'll experience today in the interview. He educates in the fields of spiritual science, biological science, biogeometry, which is he is the first person that has been able to teach biogeometry outside of Egypt. He also studies and shares on the Rosicrucian order. Point is, is, I didn't really know where to start because he's so smart and there's so much information that he is so so studied in and so so intellectual about, but he is so articulate. And so those spaces that we got into the most today were spiritual science and biological science and just how the body works, chakras, energy, how we can move it, what is disease, how to move the energy body, how we're interacting with the world around us, people. It was honestly just, fascinating. It's densely packed with vital information to live your best life. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Like, what are we here for? How do we make the most amount of progress in this life so that we can progress through and we don't have to come back and do it again? Because that's essentially what happens. If you want to know any more information about Robert, you go to his website at vesca.org. If you want to watch videos, you can go to Gaia TV. He has an entire series there. So enjoy this deep dive into the world of patterns and geometry and how that interacts with our life. Please hit subscribe. Let me know what you think in the comments and see you next time. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means that there's lots of salt and no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to any diet or lifestyle. For me, I drink Element all day, every day. I put it in just about every single drop of water that I drink. For me, it feels like it helps keep me full. It helps give me more energy. And I feel like water is absorbed better by the body when it has element in it. It truly feels like magic to me. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you use drinkelement.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkelement.com slash pretty intense. That's an interesting backdrop you've got there. It's very, very colorful. What is it, that? It's a tapestry from Zimbabwe that a friend of mine brought back from there when I was in uh, college in international studies. Very, very cool. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I'm very into color and shape. So, Well, I wasn't sure if it had some geometry uh, <laughs> nature to it that calibrated your <laughs> energy. This isn't a joke. I'm 
deadly serious, like love that stuff. And that's mostly what I want to talk to you about. You know, biogeometry, I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by energy. My biggest question in life is what is this reality we're living in? Like, what is the truth about this reality? Because while I feel it's a big question and I'm not 100% sure we can get down to it, although I bet with this conversation, you could probably enlighten me and tell me what the answer is, or at least that would be fun. Um, but when we know more about the nature of our reality, we know how to, we know how to play the game. Yes. We know how to, how to maximize it. We know we, we are then not only also hoping or even trying to believe something, we know it. And when we know it and we embody it completely, then it's a real, real reality. There's no contradicting energy from sort of believing, which implies that you don't and you need to effort for it. So let's, I would love to get to the point where we can all understand and embody the truth about this reality. So I think we start with biogeometry. Just a little bit of, of background to that. I had uh, been an instructor in the Marine Corps in the nuclear, biological, chemical defense field. And at that time, I began to study aspects of biology, chemistry, physics that are the background to all physical reality. And I got fascinated by how what we know about these systems that create everything in our world actually goes back to ancient knowledge from the great temples in the ancient world, the great systems of spiritual initiation. And so when you begin to study the foundations of modern atomic science, you come back to the platonic solids that were taught by the Greeks thousands of years ago. And even the first nuclear weapon was based on one of the platonic solids that the Greeks warned against thousands of years ago. Hmm. So... Getting into this aspect of looking at modern scientific research and what we had discovered about the patterns behind things, and then seeing that many of those patterns were known in the ancient world, but they understood those patterns in a much larger holistic spiritual context. Then in the time that I was uh, after the Marine Corps got into field of international studies, I was able to study systems all over the world and how they understand the patterns of creation to not only change our own lives, but to change the world around us. And that led me to the field of sacred geometry. And I was very fortunate to be able to create a series on the Gaia channel that came out last year on sacred geometry, to be able to introduce people to some of the most important concepts in that field. And I like to approach it in such a way that it's really the study of patterns. Sacred geometry is the study of all the patterns that exist, because there's a pattern to everything. And the key to empowerment is understanding what the pattern is of that thing, whether it's our finances, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our health. There's always a pattern behind success or failure. And in the ancient world, they understood that these patterns also exist for understanding Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of this current incarnation? What is the purpose of us incarnating into a physical body in a physical world to begin with? I was very fortunate to, now over 20 years ago, uh, meet Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt, who's an absolutely remarkable natural scientist, and professionally, he's an architect. And he trained me in his field of biogeometry, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. 
And I was very fortunate to be the first person outside of Egypt that he invited to become an instructor in the field because I came to all of his trainings and I took copious notes and I arranged it all in a new format. And I was very, very engaged with it. And I have a natural resonance with ancient Egypt and this type of spiritual and vibrational knowledge. It's something that's very important to me. As a kid, I never understood why people focus their attention on such transient things and didn't ask the most basic question about who am I and why am I here? And how do we use this current incarnation in the best way before it's all over? Oh, my God. Well, that's literally like what I like. I obviously come up with a lot of questions. I do a lot of research. I already knew a ton of your work. I listened to it a bunch, which is what drove me to want to talk to you. And that was my that is literally what I wrote down as sort of like an orderly, formal final question is like, what is the goal for each life or being a human being at all? But let's not start there. We can end there or we can start there. It doesn't matter. But actually, I'd like to take a moment and go backwards because I feel like we can spend lots of time with like the information, the data and what to do. But let's just go back in time first. And so let's talk about these ancient temples, ancient pyramids, um, ancient um, structures um, and civilizations and what it was, what their role was. I have, I went to Egypt um, two years ago and I had always, just like you, I've been fascinated with it. I was a teenager and wanted to go to Egypt and to see the pyramids. I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was so drawn to it. I mean, I can watch the mummy on, you know, the movie, <laughs> the mummy and be intrigued just because it has to do with Egypt. Like, yes. I'm so drawn to it. So what was the role with temples, the role with, you know, the, the pyramids and the also putting in perspective the locations of them as well? When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12 ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Yes, so the ancient Egyptian temple science was a qualitative science. Today, when we think about science, we think about it being quantitative. But in the ancient world, they understood things in terms of qualities of energy. So there's an energetic aspect that comes from higher spiritual realms, higher spiritual planes to create this world that gets expressed in the powers of color and shape and angle and proportion and number sequences. All these things are a kind of divine code or divine language of this world. In the ancient world, in every ancient tradition, including ancient Egypt, they had systems of initiation where people went through certain step-by-step -step processes 
that would expand their consciousness to higher levels. So they would begin to perceive themselves as a multidimensional being operating on multiple planes at the same time. They would begin to understand the way that human consciousness can be developed much, much further than it is currently to develop abilities that we tend to think of today as magical. And the human energy system can be developed much, much further and to do things that, again, today would be thought to be impossible in working with natural forces. And so it kind of comes back, I can paraphrase the work of Arthur C. Clarke, where he says, any sufficiently advanced form of technology that one does not understand will appear to be magic. And that's very much the way it was in ancient Egypt. And these other ancient cultures, they thought about things in a completely different way than we do. And that makes, if you see things from a different perspective, it makes things that seem to be impossible, possible. And so there's a whole system of temple initiations in ancient Egypt that were very advanced. And we need to understand some of the fundamentals of what spiritual initiation really is. Yes. So one aspect of this that's been almost forgotten today is that when we do anything with our consciousness or our energy, it starts to create an energy pattern in our physical body and our energy field. So whatever thoughts we keep generating, whatever their quality is, whatever energies we're generating with our heart or with our actions in the world, it's developing a pattern that then creates a type of secret geometric structure in our energy field. And so for advanced masters of this work, they could check out somebody's field and see what energy structures are present. So this is a very simple way to explain that. Uh, certain chakras in their energy field would be more activated or not very activated, or they would be balanced in a harmonious way, or they would be unbalanced, or the energy meridians and patterns in the body would be fully open or they would be blocked. All of these things are components of larger geometric patterns that can be created in the human energy field. And so this development of the consciousness and energy gets reflected in energy patterns in a person's field. And that's the pearl of great price that we can take through the gate of death and then into a new rebirth. And this is a classic idea, but this is like the thing that really matters. Like we can just while away our time here and not have it add up to much of anything. And we're no more advanced at the time of death than we were when we came here in the first place. Or we can do some really serious development work with our consciousness and energy and become more than we were before. And again, that gets preserved in these energy patterns in our field. That's like the one thing you take with you. Yeah. So what's the consequence of not improving in this life so we can quickly hook more people to listen so that they understand how they can fix their energy field and make progress and improve the patterns of their life or, or whatever those things are that we're going to you're going to help us understand there are many consequences but probably the most fundamental thing that that'll drive it home for everybody is that if you do not use this lifetime for advancing your state and you don't understand the patterns of life then basically you're just going to be condemned to keep repeating the same mistakes and you're going to repeat yourself to an endless cycle of suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main concepts in Buddhism is how much unnecessary suffering are we exposing ourselves to by not striving for enlightenment 
are not doing the basic work to be able to observe and control our mind, to observe and control and direct our feeling life, to observe and control our energy and our actions in the world, to control and direct our speech. So this is really a universal concept. Uh, but for the Buddhists, they talk about skillful action. Take skillful action, you'll develop yourself to a place where you have more pleasure, you have more freedom, you understand how things work, and you can make an educated decision. Or you can take unskillful action, just be in the reactive mind and react emotionally to everything around you in a way that's destructive and destroys relationships, destroys possibilities. And then you'll just stay on that cycle of suffering. So that's really the most fundamental part of it. But the other part of it is there's a deeper aspect of suffering beyond our usual day-to-day -day experience. And that is there's a type of subtle suffering that comes by not knowing who we are, by not mm. remembering who we are, why we're here, what we chose to do in this incarnation, this larger spiritual context. It's often very subconscious in people, but it drives them to try to fill their lives with other things that just become destructive in the end. Well, help us get off the wheel of karma. <laughs> I'll do I'll do what I can. I'm I'm working to get off it myself, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, is that I mean, as a, as a, as an additional little question right now, is that innate within the human existence is that we will never be able to fully see ourselves and remember our past and remember where we came from and who we are, and that is confined within this dimension as part of the human existence in the in our in our in our challenge of this reality is that part of this matrix this was understood in the ancient world in classical initiation as what was referred to as taking the draft of forgetfulness this means that when you incarnate you are made to forget who you are where you're from what this whole purpose is your past incarnations the whole we thing sure do this classic understanding of the draft of forgetfulness is the thing that we come in not remembering now this is not true for people of certain levels of higher spiritual development because of the structures they've created in their subtle bodies they can bring in the remembrance of who they are pretty much from the beginning and these people can recognize the people around them in their lives from their connections with them in previous lives and and they they maintain more of this knowledge but that's based on certain structures you create in the subtle body that that takes work it takes knowledge to to create these yeah. now initiation well major part of it has always been to go through a remembering process in the european rosicrucian tradition there's a great initiation saying which is in the beginning was the memory that means the first thing that we have to do when we come back every time is to regain our karmic memory of who we are because this is not our first rodeo we've done this before and so there are certain types of karmic exercises a person can do to start to remember who they are where they come from etc and that that gate is not as closed for some people as it is for others and particularly, there's a lot of this going on now because there's been such a resurgence of what in the ancient world was particular types of plant medicine that were used in initiation processes and is now coming back with the mass use of psychotropics, often related to the old plant medicine. And that can often help people regain their karmic memory through certain activations. But the key thing here is to remember, again, who we are, why we're here, because otherwise, you know, it's like we're in some movie where we're amnesic and we have to go through this whole process of where am I? What's happened? What's this whole thing about? 
But once we start to remember that, now we regain our purpose and we begin to remember who we've been and how that's led to here and that this is itself only one bead in a chain leading to a particular destination for us to become a unique spiritual being in the world. It's what from the Greek work is called teleological destination. It's like we're being pulled toward what we're meant to become in the future. And all these interesting things happen to us, people we meet and experiences that we're given and things we didn't expect appearing in our lives, helping to pull us toward this. Mm -hmm. And so, like again, in the old Rosicrucian initiation, this was referred to as reading the name inscribed on the stone. And this is where we begin to remember who we've been before. Now, there's a lot of challenges with this because it's very easy for this to fall into fantasy where we're just projecting all types of things about, I'd like to be this, I'd like to be that. So if people, if their first memories are something that's very elevated, like I was this fantastic, famous historical figure in the past, and I'm just drenched in glory, then often that should be questioned. Because when you actually start doing past life regression with people, it's very common that first thing they remember are traumatic experiences. Uh, being a scullery maid in 13th century France where you were horribly abused, this type of thing. But the larger aspect of it is that there is a purpose to our series of incarnations. Now, again, going to the modern European Rosicrucian tradition, which I believe is a kind of transformation of the old Egyptian initiation, the Essene initiation, the Greek, the Holy Grail tradition in Europe into a modern format. There's a, a whole aspect of this where human race has a esoteric name, just like the higher angelic beings have names that that point to what their power, their function is. Mm -hmm. The name for the human race in the Rosicrucian tradition is that we are spirits of love and freedom. And so that's one of the hardest combinations to get right, because love is all about uniting and becoming one with other other people, other beings. And then freedom is the ability to separate from other beings and make completely independent decisions. Now, higher spiritual beings have the ability to do something that another teacher of mine, uh, Dr. Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School of Australia, back in the 90s, I was training with him, and he had a concept called combinescence. So combined essence, combinescence, you may perceive in spiritual perception that there is what appears to be a, a gigantic angelic being, some great spiritual being. But then you perceive that there are other beings starting to peel out of this larger spiritual being as independent entities. And you begin to realize that non-physical spiritual beings can actually unite together in a mm. combined energetic form that appears to be one being. Oh but God. then they can separate back out again into separate beings. Oh my God. Now, in a physical body, we have a very limited ability to do this. But out of the physical body as energy fields, they can actually combine together. And so that's part of this thing of being spirits of love and freedom. We're supposed to find the right rhythm, the right ability to make free will choices, to be able to unite with another person or persons to become the one again, back to the divine plane, back to the Godhead, back to the original unified state where we're all one. And that's what we all seek emotionally. We want to find that partner that we can become one with. Oh, like the combination of the energy that we see as like one thing, but we know it's like, when you say that, I'm like, yes, uh, I was just, you know, I have done some plant medicine ceremonies and recent experience I had, 
you know, it, whenever I'm explaining it, it's a they. They want me to know, but it seems <laughs> singular, but it's a they. Yeah. It just you know it's an as you know it's a collective energy, but it seems as though it's one voice in a way. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. So this is really part of the classical knowledge about multiple planes of creation. At the highest level, what in the West we might call the divine plane, everything is one. There is no polarity. There is no duality. There's no yin-yang. There's no masculine-feminine. There's no separation of any kind. Everything is one. Mm -hmm. That's like the highest state that people attain in psychotropic experience. Mm -hmm. But you feel like you became one again in like the cosmic ocean and the cosmic being. And it's a very real state, and it's something that we yearn for, that we have embedded in us. So something that we yearn for to experience with another person, or to experience in high spiritual states, to get back to that state of oneness. But the level beneath the divine plane, what we might call the spiritual plane, is where that oneness divides into multiplicity, all the different mm -hmm. powers of the divine, or they say in the Hamalias, the Siddhas. Mm. And so at that level, these are great beings, beings of a tremendously high stature. We think of them today as mythological. I was just going to ask, are they the gods? Are these, are these the, you know, in ancient Greek stories or even ancient Egypt stories? Like yes. these are sort of the gods are the, are the, are the fractions of a higher level, higher dimension of reality? Absolutely. They're, they're the one divided into all of its separate powers, functions, qualities as conscious beings on a very high spiritual level. So if you're in India, you might talk about the Shiva and Shakti. If you were in ancient Egypt, you would talk mm -hmm. about the netters, the conscious powers of nature. These are all aspects of these higher spiritual forces that then move down through the planes until we get to more microcosmic beings like ourselves. And so one of the mysteries in the ancient world is what they called the, the mystery of the black cube. How is it that we're amnesiacs in this physical world and we begin to realize that we're a spiritual being having a spiritual experience in a physical body in a physical world and how did i get here and so this mystery of the black cube is on how higher beings create a space-time enclosure for us to move into as young spiritual beings going through an educational process like going to kindergarten so everything's brightly colored and solid and so we become very self-aware in this process but it's really the whole question of how we are able to attain self-awareness and then attain the higher goals of developing both love and freedom. And that becomes part of what, well, in the Chinese tradition, they call the nine heart pains, the things that become the most challenging for us in life. We're all going to seek that partner that we can become one with again and unify with and have that love with, because love is all about unification into the one, no separation. Mm -hmm. But then you have to have the freedom and you've got to be able to have your own time and your own space and make your own decisions and not just give yourself over to another person. That rhythm of love and freedom, particularly in intimate relationships, you know, is one of the greatest challenges in life. It can have the greatest pleasures in life, but it can also have the greatest pain. But the whole of human life is really about how do we balance love and freedom, service to others and self-development without 
flying off into mass narcissism in one sense or losing our freedom and independence in the other polarity codependency so let's talk about how to do that <laughs> how do we how do we evolve spiritually um geometrically pattern wise our i've heard you talk about you know our our energy structure mm -hmm. um so i'm not sure the right exact direction to go this is the hard thing about interviewing you is you are so wise and knowledgeable about so many things it's hard to know exactly which way to point the ship but um <laughs> i maybe, get the idea <laughs> <laughs> maybe thank you um uh, bear with me um maybe what creates our energy structure is that something passed down from lifetimes is this something created is this something uh through dna and um our parents in some way genetically um what is it that creates our energy structure and you know then of course they probably roll into how do we change that or how do we evolve that how do we grow so that we can reach a point in space and time with our bodies uh that we can then be confident and comfortable and know ourselves well enough to be able to uh unite but be free and not only do that with ourselves but in but with someone else cuz freedom is the having giving the other person freedom too yes absolutely so one of the core aspects of this and thank you very much for the kind the kind oh, comments so true it's just like i could just listen to you for hours and and i have <laughs> <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that so again this all comes back to the study of patterns there's a reason why every classical tradition teaches sacred geometry because if you don't understand the pattern of something, you have no ability to co-create with it or to use it for your own benefit. You're just a victim of that. And again, that's true for everything in life, whether it's relationships, finances, health, everything is based on this, including our spiritual development. The problem we have today is what I often refer to as the blessing and the curse, that we actually have more access to different schools of spiritual knowledge today than at any previous time in recorded human history stuff that you would have to go to incredible links in the past to like go to another country and try to be accepted into a temple and have sure. them teach you and they wouldn't even teach you the main stuff for 10 years now you can buy a book on it it's yeah. incredible or the listen to this <laughs> exactly and so for example the higher level chinese Taoist internal alchemy systems which are some of the most advanced energetic work in the world was super hidden until the 1980s and then it began to be published today you can get books about it you can go to courses on it, it used to be super hidden your but, work even being with COVID, i remember you talking about how making that platform available instead of doing things in person that created such a such a bigger reach it, it really did so again there's blessings and curses involved so the the blessing of this is that we have incredible access to very deep spiritual knowledge and practice information that in the past would have been almost impossible for us to access so for those of us that are really excited and stimulated about these types of possibilities this is an amazing time to be alive but the curse of it is that a lot of this information didn't come out in a whole form it came out in these broken fragments okay. and so and a lot of the way the information is coming out is either slightly twisted or corrupted or just plain wrong or it's a half truth that's sometimes more dangerous than a complete falsehood Is that partly why the information was held tightly and usually given verbally is because 
that way it couldn't they wanted to make sure that the people that were getting it were able to use it responsibly and not manipulate people with it because it's very powerful technology that's absolutely right is that you had i mean they didn't even teach you the main stuff for years because they had to test the uh, quality of your character sure. because again you could misuse this knowledge terribly mm. and and so that was one reason why it was kept hidden and and these very close initiation systems but again we have this uh the blessing of the access to the knowledge but the curse that is completely fragmented today okay and so we have to put it back together into a unified whole because if we don't understand how the pieces fit together again we don't have what we need to make informed decisions we have very limited time and energy in our earthly life and we have to be able to make informed decisions about what's the most important things i need to learn What's the most important things I need to experience? Yes. What's the most important practices for me to do? Because there's a bazillion practices you could do out there. Overwhelming. It, it can be. Mm -hmm. But if you can put it into a context, if you can see how it all fits back together, then you can navigate in an informed way through it. And that's part of what I created the Vesica Institute for. I don't claim to have all the universal knowledge, but it's meant to put the pieces back together uh, to be able to express in the most clear, concise form possible so that people can make informed decisions and understand how those those pieces do fit together today and so going to your question about well what's this about it where's our energy body come from so every human being once we understand those patterns once we see the larger context again that's why sacred geometry is so important because it's really the study of patterns not only metaphysical patterns but also those for our daily life and the physical world so every human being is based on the same sacred geometry pattern which as i describe in the gaia series is a thought form in the mind of god from the high divine plane level that then manifests down through the planes as a particular pattern of energy and consciousness we all have that exact same blueprint that's why we all have the same chakras the same energy meridians mm. acupuncture points etc it's exact same blueprint for all of us because originally we were all one we were all one in the divine plane with mm -hmm. the godhead and the unified field mm -hmm. we were all one there but for what's sometimes described as the pleasure of the godhead the pleasure of the one uh we separated out into separate beings so that we could magnify our experience as separate beings and we think we're completely individual and separate from everything else for a period of time so that we can now develop in a fractal way as separate beings and magnify the whole experience set of everyone and everything so we all have the exact same blueprint that gives us the capacity for consciousness energy making free will choices but also unifying back to the one if we choose to or learn how to mm -hmm. and so that universal pattern of energy can then be individualized and so every act that we take every thought that we generate every emotion we generate every action we take actually creates an emanation of a particular quality of energy out of our energy field that's why some people are very pleasurable to be around because what they're emanating out from the quality of their thoughts their feelings their actions is something that feels good to be around for other people it may not feel so good because you can get caught in the reactive mind a lot of detrimental trauma-based aggressive fearful whatever states but it's always being projected out of the field so whatever we do on a regular basis begins to etch these patterns into our energy field certain energy centers become hyperactivated. some others become sedated and not properly active and so we begin to 
individualize in an idiosyncratic way our own energy system and our own consciousness. And so we then become more and more individual beings as we go along. And that's considered by higher spiritual beings to be something very beautiful. Uh, I've heard it expressed before that, you know, for us, the higher spiritual beings are our religion. But the religion for the higher spiritual beings is the human race. What? We're like we're like their children. So, and so they yeah, love see that, but wow. They, they love looking at us and seeing how is this person going to use their free will to become a unique being in the universe, a being that has a quality that's different from any other being that exists. Because it's a part of them. It's a part of them, but it also is creating something new at the same time. And so it's, it's like is this the, like the opposite? Is this like in contrast to entropy? This is sort of like, is this like a balancing force to entropy? It is. It is. No, we look at only one side of this equation in modern physics. So like we look at gravity and, and we understand the gravity force, but there's no discussion of the levity force. But levity is an opposite force that exists just as much as, as gravity. Right. And, right. and so if the higher spiritual beings, if we're their religion, it's this whole question of if we truly become at the end of our process of incarnations a spirit of love and freedom, then we have the capacity to be a unique being in the universe with unique capacities. And the metaphor that I often use with this is that all snowflakes are crystallized water, but every snowflake crystallizes in a completely unique pattern that is never duplicated. So every human being is becoming a unique being. We'll have many overlaps, but you know, everybody's got a different flavor to them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really experience that internally, different people have what they call in the Himalayas a different nectar, they have a mm -hmm. different vibrational quality, right? And so they become unique beings in the universe. And then our interactions with them, our energy field, particularly in higher tantric work, our energy field connecting to their energy field makes something unique in that energetic blending because we're two separate fields to begin with. And what comes out of that union of the field is then another amazing thing. So when we co-create with another person and whatever work we do with another person, whether it's highly intimate or more external, you know, we're, we can create these amazing, unique things. And there's a mystery then about human relationships. Is this perhaps where, because there's in some spiritual spaces, people talk about how powerful it will be if even just one couple comes to two people come together in this unified way, become one. Yes. And, 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 and the frequency and the pattern that that creates will be so very, very powerful that even just one set of this can make a difference. Because when you take, I'm thinking about like how cymatics and how when a structure goes from one form to another a new more complicated form it kind of does it kind of gets messy and then reestablishes at a more complicated level but if you put two people together you're adding essentially two fields together that inherently create a new higher dimensional more complicated form they create a unique new energetic structure. Uh, and also there's a very important part of this that I want to bring out, which is we've gone from a unity state to a duality state. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a duality state, you always have a magnetic attraction to the opposite polarity. It's I like know. power magnets. You I always know. have that magnetic attraction. And that's what <laughs> that's what allows us to grow and develop 
and have some passion in life, you know, keep looking for the stuff. But there's an aspect of this, whenever you bring two opposite polarities together, there's an, a gating effect that happens. When the two opposite polarities come together and connects to the one, it creates a type of a spiritual gate. So that's one of the secrets of what we would think today as like higher level Tantra. Two people join their energy fields together. When the two opposite polarities mix together, they can open up this higher dimensional gate and allow in energies, forces, a vortex from higher worlds. So this is something of great significance. So for example, in my uh, Gaia series, I talk about a very important energy practice of creating a toroidal circulation around the energy field. Now this already exists, yeah. but a lot of fundamental practices are about becoming conscious of what already exists and now co-creating with it and making it stronger, making it better, fixing how we've screwed it up unconsciously. And so we can do it from the earth to the heavens circulation or the heavens to the earth. But I brought out in the series that it's rarely spoken about that the highest level of this is to do both simultaneously. And when you have that yin and the yang circulations passing through each other, they create a zero point, which opens up a gate of energy, really a hyperdimensional gate to another world. Does this take two people though? Because I, yes. I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm actually second, I'm thinking about sex magic and the things that yes. I've learned about, about, about taking the energy and you can push it in a more masculine direction up or a more feminine direction down. And so does it take two people creating the opposite toroidal fields that intersect? Or is this about you doing it yourself? Because that seems very hard. Well, this, it's actually both. So well, it was understood in the classical tradition that there's solo cultivation, the work we need uh -huh. to do on ourselves. And we got to do a certain amount of work on ourselves or we're not able to do higher level work with other people. We're just too yeah. screwed up. So, <laughs> totally true. So, so there's a certain amount of solo cultivation we can do. And when we do things like in the energy field, have the toroidal fields pass through each other, then we can do that in our own field. And we can feel some of that, that opening of that gate just through that in our own field. Yeah. Another very important part of our working on ourselves, and then I'll get to the part about the dual cultivation, is that we tend to get stuck in the West today with healing. And somehow healing has become this idea that it's almost like a goal in itself. It's like the, you know, we're just healing forever. And that's true to a certain extent. There's, there's layers of the onion and we'll keep on healing as things go. But I found out years ago, if I put the word healing in the name of a class I offer, I'll get three times as many people as if I don't. And it's like people are somehow this conscious or subconscious idea that it's like everything is all about just healing, heal, heal, heal. But and that's fine. It's absolutely essential because if we don't heal, we don't become whole because the root of the word heal in the ancient languages is the word whole. We have to become whole again. And the trauma that we suffer coming into physical incarnation as an amnesiac, as a completely helpless little infant into God knows what kind of family and situations. That you probably do. chose. <laughs> we probably chose it. But nonetheless, it has an impact. Yeah. And we have to become whole again. So we're not just like a crazy, reactive mind, emotional suffering. So healing is essential. I'm not putting down healing. But we lost the context of that. Healing is just the first stage. So again, this is in solo cultivation. Healing is the first stage where we have to become whole enough that our energy field and our consciousness is coherent. Once we're coherent, and basically, to some degree, have our shit together, then we can actually do the real work. 
And mm -hmm. so we might refer to that next stage as activation. Mm -hmm. Activation is where we start to activate all of our latent potential, all of our latent power, all of the latent energy centers in the body, each of which hold a particular siddha. They hold a particular power in our different energy centers of the body. Every chakra, every acupuncture point, there's a power there, which is why that's the basis of healing systems in India and China. Activate the power of that point, mm -hmm. all kinds of things can happen. So activation is the next stage uh, beyond just the healing. Then activation itself is not enough because you can find people doing plant medicine and things and activating all kinds of stuff, sure. but, but their lives are still in chaos mm. because the next stage is to stabilize. Stabilization is the next stage. So you have to heal enough to become coherent. Then you need to start activating your latent potential, the powers of the mind, the power of the energy field. And then what you've activated has to be stabilized. And then mm -hmm. at that point, you're getting something that will stay with you throughout your life, throughout your incarnations, past the gate of death, as a permanent thing in your structure. So let's put all that on the side of solo cultivation. Then, like you were talking about with sex magic, we have the dual cultivation. And that's where higher level work can only be done with another person. And so some aspects of this are reflected in spiritual teachings, like in the Christian tradition, where they say, when two or more gather together in my name, I am there with you, type mm -hmm. of thing. You can't, it can't be done. The higher level work connection to these higher forces can't be done solo. It has to be done with another person. Now, that is then bringing together the two opposite polarities, whatever polarity you chose to incarnate in, whatever polarity the other person has, and you bring those polarities together to open up the gating of that field. And again, the highest level of this is to get to the point that you're no longer conscious of your physical body at all. You're conscious of yourself as an energy field, and the other person is an energy field, both are specific qualities. Then the two combinesce together into one, and it becomes a state of complete oneness. This is the state of the highest bliss with another person. Mm. All the other things are building up to it. All the basic stuff in a relationship and then the sexual stuff and you keep mm. building up, it becomes more energetic, it becomes more spiritual. And then when you get to the point that you unify into the one, you've managed to open up a tremendous force that can greatly accelerate the process of development for both people. And it generates a force out into the world that like you were talking about, when two people do this work and generate this power, it's like you have one nodal point in a great grid of nodal points that's now lit up and becomes activated and it helps to activate the other points in the grid. Now, this is also linked to sacred geometry. So like in the Rosicrucian tradition, they talk about the minimum number of people to form a group that would change the world would be 12 people. It takes 12 different perspectives on the well, same that's reality. That's an interesting number, isn't it? Yes. It takes uh, 12 different perspectives on the same reality to be able to understand all the possible aspects of it. Because you don't understand it from just one aspect. Then you're the blind men of the elephant. You know, you think the elephant is a wall or a spear or something. you got to have 12 different perspectives and know what the thing really is. That's why there's like 12 disciples around Christ. And so that harmonic number of 12 is, is very significant. That's why there's 12 signs of a zodiac, 12 different perspectives on the sun. And so this then moves to the point that if you had 12 groups of 12 on the earth for the 144, that would really transform the earth's energetic field. So this is all based again on- That doesn't seem that hard. 
You wouldn't think it would Probably be. That does not seem that hard. 12 groups of 12 that are able to. So like, let's talk about, let's get like a little nuanced with that. Like what okay. is that group of 12 achieving? You say all the aspects, like how can that happen? So again, the classical idea on this is that every person would bring a different perspective into it. Naturally, they already do though, right? Like let's just, naturally, they already bring a unique perspective. They do. But on an archetypal level, one would have more of the power and perspective of Aries. One would have the power and perspective of Taurus, these types of things. And then you got the unity coming together in a microcosm. And that comes together into a very powerful whole. But the challenge of this is that if you ever worked in a spiritual organization before, things tend to always get screwed up in spiritual organizations because of people's petty ego conflicts and all this type of thing. It's very hard to work in spiritual organizations because you have to deal with all these different personalities. But again, this is the archetype. It certainly would be possible. It's often easier to start on the, the dual cultivation, finding that one other person <laughs> to do this work with. Why? How does how does polyamory work? I mean, come on, you can't even, it's hard <laughs> enough to make it work with one other person, let alone a couple. Like, <laughs> Well, the, the whole thing, I think, with uh, the polyamory movement that we have today is that uh, it does have a very important deconstruction aspect to it, which is that in our culture today, we have so many thought forms and programmings about we're going to have one other person that's going to perform every function we ever needed to have brought into our life, everything to make us feel loved and whole and everything we want to experience. They'll share all of that with us. And this becomes a huge burden we put on somebody else. Like this one other person is supposed to fulfill all of my needs in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very unfair. So right. it can it can be really rough. And this also then leads to the whole thing where we start, as I talked about in the episode in the Gaia series on sacred geometry relationship, we start casting people into our own psychodrama. So like this person is going to get cast into the role of my the bad mommy. This is the bad daddy. This is all the things that I need to work on my conflict with. And I'm not going to tell you about it, but I'm going to project all this on top of you. So I think this idea of polyamory is, is something that actually is part of a spiritual progression. If it's done in an ethical and healthy way of being able to get out of the grasping of someone to, you must perform this role for me, to leaving them free, but finding a way to unite. So is it a transient phase for humans to move closer to love and freedom or a path like actually a landing place for lo love and freedom is it a part is it on the path to love and freedom so that you can be able to do that with one person or is that actually what where you end up when you get to love and freedom i don't know if i have a, a completely solid answer to it but it's one of those things where in the end, we're going to have to explore all kinds of different things to get to the final result. We have to be able to extend our flexibility in all kinds of directions in life. You know, this is the heretical aspect of the prodigal son teaching from the, the Christian tradition that most mainstream Christians completely ignore because it's simply too heretical and too dangerous to say that the you know, the son that went and experienced all kinds of crazy stuff in life is more esteemed by the father than the one that stayed behind. Exactly. And got so, all the and got the and got the big 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 party when he came home. <laughs> that's right. Cut the best cow or calf or whatever it was and you know, slaughtered exactly. that one. And 
So, so no doubt at the end, we're going to have to experience all these different things to get the maximum flexibility. I mean, some people may disagree with me, but this is all just my perspective. And so the we're going to have to have that experience of focusing on just one person and seeing how far we can take that at some point in our incarnations, but also this aspect about being able to be free and explore where we feel connections with multiple people in a way that is not constrained by all of these societal conditionings. I think is a part of a natural growth of humanity right now that's extremely healthy because when you see the amount of suffering that people have based on these ideas, you have to stay with one person forever, they're going to fulfill all of your needs. And even though you've been absolutely miserable and are just waiting for death after being together for 30 years, you still got to stick together. I'm not sure that that actually leads to a better outcome. Uh, I just uh, got done. I interviewed David Buss today, who's an evolutionary psychologist. And he said the, he was just explaining the exact same thing where, you know, say you are in a monogamous relationship for a very, very long time. Most of those people aren't really happy. Yes. Yes. So common. So common. And if again, when a person is at a particular state of solo cultivation and can find people that they're a match with, I mean, that's that's magic. And that's another thing I think is very important because it's so easy, particularly when relationships fail. It's so painful when intimate relationships fail. It's very easy to fall into this type of country music story about, oh, she done me wrong. And my person that loves me is my dog. And it becomes like this type of very lower consciousness thing about I'm the hero. I was in the right. They were in the wrong. They're the villain. But and, you know, there are abusive relationships where that could be the case. But most of the time, it's just comes down to the very simple fact that it wasn't a match. And people match on different levels. People may match more toward a, a physical or energetic level, more sexual level. They may match more emotionally or mentally or spiritually. And hopefully they may match on all kinds of different levels. That would mm -hmm. be, be awesome. Or only but, match for a little while until you change and, and then they don't match anymore. Exactly. The only constant is change. And you know one of the worst things they ever say to somebody in a relationship is, you changed. And like, that's not permitted. You have to stay who you were before and all of the pledges you made when you were a different person, you now have to, to stick with, even though you're a completely different person now. Mm -hmm. We can't freeze a person in place. So I think it's really healthy to get out of the who's right, who's wrong in the relationship breakups and just recognize it's not a match anymore. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes something really clean. It's like, do you match with this person? If so, explore it on whatever level it's a match. If you're not a match with the person, admit it and save your both of you the suffering and and move on in whatever direction you need to go. Relationships and matching and being triggered and growing. And the old saying, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. <laughs> All right. Yeah. How explain that, explain that expression and how true that how that can be explained from a geometrical pattern sense. Because everything splits into polarity from unity, this also happens with developing our consciousness. And there's two aspects then. There's an essential polarity to develop our consciousness. And so whether we see things as they actually are or just see them as our projections is related to our needing to develop two types of meditative practices. The first type is the type that was primarily developed in the East, and that is receptive meditation. 
Receptive meditation is things like Zen or Vipassana mm. or transcendental meditation. Okay. You're not generating any thought forms. In mm -hmm. fact, you're holding your mind completely clear. The mind becomes a clear mirror. And they say in Zen, for example, that you're developing the ability to have a direct view of reality without any filters. At an objective one, a real objective view. A real objective view of reality, what's actually right in front of you at that moment without all of your projections about what's right, what's wrong, what do I want this person to do or not do, all of these types of embedded perspectives that we carry with us. So a true receptive meditation is getting into a clear mind state where the mind is often likened to like a clear sky or to the surface of, of pure water as a pure mirror. And we learn how to not project our own content onto people or situations and just see it in its reality. So receptive meditation is absolutely essential. And it's what's really been focused on more in the East than the West. Mm -hmm. Then the other side of it, equally important, but completely different, complementary polarity, is the active meditation. Active meditation is things like what we think of today as creative visualization. It's really the ability to create a thought form. Now, this can be a magical power. The thought forms that we create can change the reality in our own lives. They certainly change the reality inside of us. They can start to change the reality outside of us, too, if we create a coherent enough thought form. It all gets projected out. Every thought, every emotion we ever have gets projected out of our field, out into the world. It happens automatically for all energetic beings. The power of this is now you can begin to take action through the crafting of thought forms. And of course, you have to take action to manifest it in the world. But the thought form is the beginning of the process. It has a power of its own as well. Isn't that it's, it, that's in and of itself is an action? It is. It is. But then we also can take action with our feeling life and our ability to take action with the physical body out in the world to manifest anything we ever dreamt of. And so the thing is that we have to have both aspects of this. And the thing is that almost all traditions today will only teach one or the other. And if the other side of it even comes up, they'll tend to ridicule the other side. The people that do the creative visualization just kind of mock the, the clear mind state stuff as, oh, you know, they're not achieving anything. They're not doing anything. It doesn't have a purpose. And the people in the clear mind state say, look at those people doing all the, the thought form generation work. They're not even able to see what's right in front of their face. And they're both right. So this is another again- Another fractal, another, another, another example of duality. It's another example of duality. And you can't just pick one duality and say that's good and the other is bad. It's always the union of the two dualities to get back to the one or what the Tibetans would call the middle path, the middle way, right? Way. That, that creates the miracle when the mm -hmm. two come together. And so that would be my my main geometric answer to this. You have to develop both types of receptive and active meditation. And just like breathing in and breathing out or stepping with the left foot and the right foot, that's how you get somewhere. One of the things that for me has been a big, big shift in my experience in this life of, of my reality going through it each day is becoming the observer. It's really like, not taking things personally, not projecting. And I'm not saying not at all. I'm just saying less, I should say, because um, I'm still human. But to be able to really see from an observer perspective, the dynamic that's really existing and how, you know, if somebody is irritated with you because, you know, your dog's off of a leash, well, instead of reacting and being, I got it, like, seriously, like I have an electric collar on them. I 
Trust me, I've said this. I'm like, if I put this collar on you, you'd listen to. Maybe I've said that before. But to know, like to have enough perspective and wisdom and observer perspective now to go, wow, I am either they've been hurt before in this scenario, so they're protecting themselves, or they would never, never go against the rules of the road. And they would always have their dog on a leash because they're a rule follower. So now I've triggered them because they would never do what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. so they believe that I should live the same way. And so like I see, so how can I progress that observer, more objective perspective in life? And, and how can how can one kind of get get on that path? Because I've felt for myself, it's been really valuable for just staying calm in so many more situations and not not creating drama. I think that is so incredibly important uh, for us not to generate conflict. And so part of it, again, is the receptive meditation to get to where we hold a clear mind state. Because even if people are very annoyed with you and acting aggressively, it changes the energetic situation. If you're completely calmed, balanced, not reactive, but then it needs to go to another level. And this is what is one of the teachings from the Holy Grail tradition of Europe. Very misunderstood today, often very misinterpreted as a, as a bloodline type of thing. But the real Holy Grail tradition had to do with certain types of spiritual development to get to a higher level, regardless of any bloodlines. And one part of this is what they call the speech of the Grail. So there were knights of the sword who cut with the sword. And you can, in your relationships, cut people with your comments and your actions and try to dominate them and be right and make them wrong and enforce your perspective on top of those, be a knight of the sword, or you can be a knight of the word. Mm -hmm. And the knight of the word is the more advanced level in the grail tradition. And that's where you develop the speech of the grail. It's a, a dynamic ability to think on your feet and to find a way to communicate to other people in a way that heals and enlightens them. That any any case of conflict that we have with another person, if we can keep the clear mind state and then use the speech of the grill so that we don't cast them in the in a role of some inferior being while we're the superior being, but we're two human beings going through our experience and we keep an open heart and an open connection with them. And speak to them in a way that clearly reflects our perspective while also respecting and honoring them in a way that hopefully brings light rather than heat to the situation. That's another major part of it. And again, this a lot of this is based on the development of the heart. Can we find a way to keep our heart open and communicating to another person without caricaturing them in a particular conflict situation in a way that respects them, even if what they're doing is absolutely absurd and destructive? But it's like the concept of namaste from india namaste meaning that the divine in me sees and respects the divine in you mm-hmm. that we're actually any time that we direct energy to the divine plane we activate that energy so there's ways to do that like in biogeometry and in in energy work to connect to those points and activate them but in this case what we are talking about is whenever you're with another person and you are actively seeing their divine core, their divine self, no matter how screwed up they are and how badly they're acting out. Which is essentially seeing the best in them, right? Is that is that a way to like sort of bring that to a tangible sort of way way of thinking? 
it, it is seeing the best in them, but it does literally become seeing the divine light in them as a very literal act, seeing the divine light and core and knowing that they come from the same one that we came from okay. as an absolute internal knowing, mm -hmm. not like an abstract idea, but like feeling it in the heart. And it's like the way that the Buddhists get over uh, conflict, like they have ways to solve anger. And so they talk about one of the first things we have to do to overcome being angry with another person is to ask ourselves how they suffer. And once you start seeing how the person's actions are coming out of their suffering, no matter how badly they're being destructive, it, it's easier to work with it. Is it easy to say always for that? It's always coming from their pain, their their challenges, their suffering. Yes, because for some people, the best defense is a good offense. Yeah. Are these what would be like biosignatures in someone or what are biosignatures? Okay. So now we're, we'll move into the ideas of Egyptian uh, biogeometry. Mm. And so the knowledge of what was done in the ancient Egyptian temples was basically lost. And they have a, a saying in Egypt that our mysteries were never betrayed, meaning that what was secret in the temple stayed secret in the temple. Fair enough. We'll now, remember. So, we'll remember, right. won't we? Absolutely. That's what we're doing right now. Is we're remembering this now it's a very interesting thing just on the road to answering your question that you know for myself and for many other people who begin to remember past lives one of the first past lives they remember is egyptian now i find that fascinating because we've had other past lives more recently why don't we remember those first there's something about the egyptian incarnations that are so significant to us with the and energetic frequency that we lived in that life be so loud is maybe the like a, just a slang word but so such a high frequency such a standout frequency that we're picking up at that energetic signature in our past first because it's like the most complicated the most progressive could it be that i do think that's one part of it many of the images you see in classical religions are sacred geometry forms that have a deeper meaning or teaching behind them but only the initiates are taught the deeper meaning. The average person only understands at the surface level. Example, the original Jewish menorah from the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. Mm -hmm. So there's seven candlesticks. The first mm -hmm. one is connected in a great arc to the seventh one. The second in a great arc to the sixth. The third in a great arc to the fifth. And the fourth one stands alone. Now, the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition has a very deep understanding of time and time cycles. And so what this embeds is that certain periods of time are divided into seven stages, like a seven-stage alchemical process in time. Cutting to the chase, you're going into all the details. In the time since the Atlantean catastrophe in the Western tradition, it's understood, for example, with the European Rosicrucians, that the third post-Atlantean epoch was the Egyptian epoch. And the one we're at now is the fifth epoch, the European epoch where the Europeans became the dominant people. That's the what we're in now? That's right. And so there's a connection between the third and the fifth because it's like the fourth is the dividing point. It's like a mirror image. So the third and the fifth are mirrors of each other, second and the sixth, first and the seventh. Without going into all the other details of it, this means that we're in a part of a time cycle right now where if you understand the greater structure of the time cycle is we're having a certain type of reflection going the opposite direction of what we had in ancient Egypt. And so we have a natural fascination with our time in ancient Egypt. And if you turn on 
you know, some documentary channel on TV, the vast majority of documentaries about ancient cultures are all about Egypt. There's very, very few about ancient Persia and other cultures are all about Egypt. But that's because that's being reawakened in us, the knowledge we had then, but now in a later stage of evolution. So there's all of there's hidden sacred geometry patterns of time as well as in space. So that's my answer to the whole thing about, you know, why is the Egyptian yeah. so important now? Let's go into that more. I, I, I like to, I want to, I want to understand this better. So since you're the, this is, you're the, such the perfect person for this, because you, you look at things in the way that it feels tangible for me, which is through patterns and energy and it's tangible thing. While we can't see it, I can feel it. I know it. I believe it. I be, I know it. Um, so how is it that we're connecting to these different time space time space realities, the third and the fifth, the first and the seventh, these things? How explain that from a geometric standpoint, from a pattern standpoint? So when you have a cycle of seven, there's a natural relationship where the very first stage gets reflected in the in the last stage. It's a it's a polarity relationship. Everything's polarities, right? Yep. So, yep, so you're yep, you're coming yep. in and you're going out. They talk about that with dimensions a lot, where yes, um, like the the last connects back to the first again. That's always the case. Okay. And it's just like the Ouroboros eating its tail sort of thing. So you've got the the first and the seventh are connected again, and the menorah has got a great arc showing you they're connected. And so the first Persilantian epoch was the Indian epoch, with the time of the oldest book in the world, the Laws of Manu and the creation of the great civilization in the Indus Valley and the Vedic culture. Second was the Persian Zoroastrian tradition. Mm -hmm. The third was the Egyptian. The fourth was the Greco-Roman. Mm -hmm. And the fifth is the current European. And then there's more to come with the sixth and the seventh on the way. And so it's always the case then that the fourth, just as shown in the menorah as the dividing line in the center, is the place that the whole process inverts. What was coming in is now going out. And so there's a, a development the opposite direction in those later stages. So all of us in, that have these recollections of ourselves in ancient Egypt, there's a part of that that's being activated right now. Now, once we get into, if we're incarnating, let's say, in the sixth post-Atlantean epoch, we may be much more focused on our ancient Persian incarnations. That's something that will be called up inside of us. There's a great idea in what's called uh, Vedic astrology or Jyotish in India, which which is uh, that in, there are certain moments in time where your karmas will ripen, your karmas will be activated. They have a whole science of this in, in India of the Dasha periods. It doesn't exist in Western astrology at all. Mm. But in the Indian system, you can get your Dashas read and you'll know what karma is going to ripen at what moment of your life. Certain experiences will happen then. Same thing for us with our whole incarnation right now. There's a certain karma that's ripening from ancient Egypt having to do with the abilities we gained there, remembering, regaining those abilities, bringing them to bear in our lives right now and bringing them to bear on the earth to help the earth as a whole right now. So that's that's the basic idea of it. So do we continue to add these memories? So let's say we move from the fifth, we pick up all of the information in the third. By the time we complete the fifth, we, we reintegrate this, it. Mm -hmm. We've reintegrated the third with the fifth. 
And then we go to the sixth. We've kept that information. And now we go into the sixth and we pick up the fourth. Is that right? The the sixth and the second. Six and the second. So now yeah. we pick the we pick up the second. And so we continue to pick it up until we arrive at the end of these time cycles. And then, and then a new time over. cycle. I said, that's right. And then so a new we're in time a constant, cycle, yes. I have this like, I'm so un- incapable because I don't understand it well enough. I can't explain it simply. But maybe this will strike something in you. But I think about reality in the sense of fractals a lot. Yes. And then when I put into that, when I add in quantum entanglement, which is just so hard to understand and comprehend because it's so beyond our scope of imagination of what's really possible. Mm-hmm. Then I start to think about black holes. And I start to think about like time looping, like reality, like time and space looping. And so is there anything within the fabric of reality with geometry or anything like that that would create looping because like quantum entanglement two think two two particles a- acting instantaneously in the equal and opposite way is just such a hard thing to understand so there must be something that closes the gap between what we would look at between point a and point b and there must be sitting on top of each other in some way that's right. It's the whole idea of the unified field. It's that those two particles that are affecting each other uh, are part, they're connected through a much larger matrix. And again, this is why in my sacred geometry series on Gaia, the very first episode was about the net, the matrix of creation that everything is a part of. So we have an aspect of this where everything is integrally linked in a larger energetic and spiritual system that modern science has no concept of. They only look at the broken fragments that appear into physical reality. They look at the collapse of the wave function where the energetic waves have become a physical object, but they no longer understand the larger matrix that the waves are in, including at the higher consciousness levels Mm -hmm. before a wave that created the physical world even came into existence. Mm -hmm. So understanding it from the classical traditions of multiple planes of existence all of which we participate in we all have those within ourselves and can experience all of them in mm-hmm. ourselves is a way to understand this and fractals is a modern concept that really helps us to understand how the same pattern at a higher level of scale the same pattern at a higher uh plane level manifest here on this plane with the same pattern but reduced in scale I'll, I'll give you a particular example of an idea of, of fractal reality from 2,000 years ago in Alexandria, Egypt. In the early Christian centuries, when they were trying to understand what is the nature of the Christ being in early Christianity, one of the great, now called a church father, Origen, living in Alexandria, Egypt, wrote an incredible book called On First Principles. And in it, he says, the only way you can understand what the Christ being is, we're not talking about the master Jesus as a human being. We're talking about this larger cosmological being, the solar logos, the Christ being. It says the way to understand what this being is, is that the Godhead is so vast. The Godhead is everything. It's so vast that you don't get a a, a, a view of what that being is because it's everything everywhere. He says what the Christ being is, is a macrocosmic being 
that has all the qualities of the Godhead, but reduced in scale to the macrocosmic level to where we can actually perceive and interact with this being. And then humanity also has the qualities of the Godhead, but we're reduced to the microcosmic level. We're another level reduced, but it's the exact same fractal pattern. Mm. And, and so we are microcosmic beings with all the potentials of the Godhead latent inside of us, most of which have been neutralized because people are so screwed up today. If you actually had these higher powers, you'd create incredible destruction all around you. But this idea that it's a fractal movement from one level to another is an ancient concept, but today we can express it in geometry and math and, and get it as a visual hit. That's why I like describing the idea about how the seven time periods in a cycle work together by giving the geometric form. And that's what they thought in ancient Judaism too, which is why they gave the image of the menorah. They didn't explain to the average person what it meant. That was for the initiate to understand that's the structure of time cycles. Is there something to be said about these geometric structures, even being in Egypt? They said that the, you know, the, um, you know, the ram or any of the heads of the lions of the of the animals were were actually geometrically activating something within you when you looked at it. Mm. Is there something happening by just observing these structures, these patterns, these um these actual physical things sitting in front of us that will activate something within us? A absolutely. So for this, let me go to the work of biogeometry and my friend and teacher in Egypt, Dr. Ibrahim Karim. And he's got some amazing work on this within the, the biogeometry work. Mm. So one aspect of this is that he talks about the way that in ancient Egypt, they knew an incredible secret. And that secret was the design code behind everything in creation, the design code that allows you to crystallize physical forms into a physical world from higher energetic states. And that this became expressed through things like the hieroglyphic text and through some of the expressions that they had with design in ancient Egypt. And so there are certain energy emanations coming from certain hieroglyphs that if you test it with energetic methods like vibrational radiesthesia, mm -hmm. where you can detect subtle energy waves coming off of things, some of these hieroglyphs have very powerful energetic waves coming off them because of the shape information. Oh, wow. Like the indentions into the walls of the yes. shape that it is, it would it would bounce off of it and create energetic it, structure? It, cre it creates an energetic effect. So like you were saying, if you look at it, does it have an effect on you? And the answer is yes. So they found ways to work with shape information to be able to bring forward all types of energy states. So in biogeometry, to explain how we get the effects we get with the work, one of the the concepts that we use developed by Dr. Kareem is that energy into shape creates function. So energy is a proteus. It could take any form. But how do we program the energy to do a specific thing? We have that energy move in a specific pattern. Mm -hmm. So the energy movement pattern programs the energy to take the action. Mm -hmm. Now, that's why your heart has a specific geometric shape that's completely different from the shape of the liver. That's different from the shape of the spleen. Because the actual shape is related to the function. <gasps> and so that's what biosignatures are. You mentioned earlier biosignatures, so I'm just cycling back to that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So once shape Dr. matters. Yeah, it absolutely matters. Holy it's shit. like it's like form follows function, right? So energy into shape creates function. 
So the shape of everything matters. And any two things with a similar shape can exchange energy and information. Now, that's the idea that we have today in electromagnetic theory. We have to have a specifically shaped antenna to pick up a specific electromagnetic signal. If it doesn't have the right shape, it can't pick up the signal. But that's right. true energetically with all living beings. All right. There's like a, so heart connection, like a heart to heart coherence. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's a heart. So a heart can connect with a heart. And so what Dr. Kareem did, I'm jumping forward a few levels here to explain biosignatures, right. is that he looked at it's not just the outer shape, although the outer shape is very important. The boundary of anything contains embedded information. The shape of a human body is important. The shape mm -hmm. of an organ is important. Mm -hmm. But what he then looked at is that that shape of the heart, that shape of the liver, that shape of the kidney, it actually then becomes a container that has energy circulations inside of it. And not just one energy circulation. There may be nine or ten or a dozen different energy circulations inside the heart. Wow. Every energy circulation inside the heart is creating a different consciousness, energy, physiological function. There may be one related to the heart beating. There may be one to the heart doing filtration of the blood. There may be another one for whatever the, okay. the physiological okay. functions are, but also related to energy and consciousness. That's why in some Sufi traditions, they'll have you focus on a specific point in the physical heart, mm -hmm. because it's what connects the beat of the physical heart to a higher cosmic origin. That is what it's entrained to. Mm -hmm. And so with the biosignatures, he then began to use radiesthesia, which is the ability to detect and trace out energy movements of subtle energy. He then was able to trace out the way energy moves in the human heart in a whole variety of different ways. It was originally a three-dimensional energy movement pattern that he then flattened and simplified into a two-dimensional image to become a biosignature. But that, that's just this two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional energy flow in a particular part of the human physical body or energy field that's linked to a specific function. So in the biogeometry trainings, when we teach people the biosignatures, we show them how they work energetically in the body and how you would test a person for which ones they need. Because what happens is those energy circulations in the body can become impaired. They become impaired through trauma. They become impaired through physical illness. They become impaired through toxin buildup, any number of things. When that energy circulation in the organ becomes impaired, then the function begins to degrade. So what you're doing when you provide a biosignature to a person is you're creating a resonance effect, reminding the body of the correct energy circulation, and then restoring the function to it. Now, we don't make any medical claims for it, but that's the idea. So like what Reiki, what they do in Reiki by being able to go into the energy body and look at where the energy is. I'm very curious about the somatic work has become more and more popular right now where you're using sort of your breath and, you know, your own, you're using your, essentially a lot of your breath and moving your body to find and move stuck energy. So yes. can you explain what stuck energy is? Yes. So, for example, if you were to go to a Taoist Qigong healer mm -hmm. from China and you had a lung problem, they may have you make the same movement a thousand times a day because this is a movement of your body following the, the etheric energy flow sure. mm -hmm. that's actually going to restore the right circulation to the body. 
And that's what a lot of this Qigong type things are. Oh my God. Yeah. You're moving the field, right? You're like, you're moving the energy, the, the toroidal field. And, exactly. And, and, so, and then, oh my God. So, so the mistake that, that they make teaching it in the West is they try to teach it to you like a dance. Yes. Like, like a dance. Like, exactly. like move and this like, and move that and then this. move there and move there. And then it's, it's hard to remember it because it's like, oh, go here next or do here. But you're focused on the, the physical body part. Instead, if you had the person focus on the energy movement, and just let your body be moved by the energy movement, then it has a completely different impact and it makes a whole lot more sense. So like one of the basic movements in Qigong is like you let your hands like they're moving through water. And so if you just say, okay, move your hands like this, the energetic effect is limited. But if you tell a person, feel a rising current of energy coming up from the ground that is lifting your hands up and your hands and arms are completely relaxed, being pushed upward by the column of energy, that's what's really happening. And so that's that's the concept behind it. It's the energy flow moving the body was the original concept. Then it became more focused on the physical movement, which still has an energetic impact, but it's not as powerful as feeling the energy move the body. So what is the benefit when you say like they might have you if you have some something energetically that needs to be moved, they might tell you to do like a certain motion yes. to align and coordinate that energy in a more coherent balance flow flowing way so if you're just letting your body move like i mean i think about like there are you know people that do incredible work with keep getting people to move their bodies and you know they're very they do more intuitive kind of interpretive interpretative yes. dance and you know that is so uncomfortable for a lot of people i mean me is one like i mean i'll do it but it's like <laughs> you know i also i'm i'm really good i like to execute so like it's like what's the move again um but to just kind of move like freely without anything so what are you actually doing if you're if you're if you're following the energy instead of leading the energy with a certain movement that makes it all more co more coherent? Well, it could actually be either. You could be following a particular energy movement that's present and letting your body move with it, or it could be that you are almost magnetically creating the energy movement with the movement of the body, the mm -hmm. movement of the hands, etc. That's when you then get to all of these energy healing systems like chronic healing or things of this kind where you learn how to project energy out of the hands mm -hmm. but again it's the energy movement that's doing the work mm -hmm. the body's just following along but it's the movement of energy that's creating the effect so mm -hmm. for example in chinese medicine they describe that the vast majority of the psychological and physical illnesses we have are simply due to blockages in the body of energy because if the energy is moving properly in mm -hmm. all of its places all circulating then health is automatic mm -hmm. but as soon as there's any blockage to the movement of the energy then stagnation comes in they talk about a whole series of different stagnations blood stagnations food stagnation lymph stagnation there's a variety of stagnations you can have in your body that then lead to these problems and that can happen either through external trauma like physical impacts or illnesses coming in or it can be internal trauma like our our doing what Wilhelm Reich called armoring when we have traumatic events, the part of us that doesn't want to feel or remember that traumatic event, we hold it really tight. We don't remember it, we'll hold the temples really tight, or we'll have ocular armoring and hold the eyes really tight. Or if we don't want to say anything about it, we'll hold the jaw really tight, uh, or the throat is constricted. 
And if we don't want to feel it around the heart, then we have shallow breathing and we constrict the chest or things like this. That's it was really fundamental work that Wilhelm Reich did to start the modern mind-body therapy movement like 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing here is that we're then suppressing the movement of energy because we're trying to suppress the feeling of the trauma. Mm-hmm. And to some degrees, that's a coping mechanism because we yeah. might be in a situation that we're not able to cope with it right now. Yeah. Now, when you are able to cope with it, you need to let it move. You need to let it out. Yeah. But, so by you know, letting it, your body lead the way, you're starting to liberate that energy. And so when you're doing things like authentic movements and spontaneous mm-hmm. movement, part of it is loosening up all the myofascial adhesions and stuff mm-hmm. that most of us have because we're just too rigid all the time. And that mm-hmm. feels fantastic. Mm-hmm. But it can also be in deeper levels of that work. And we've already got the physical body a little more flowing. Then we can really allow ourselves to unify with larger energetic flows in an environment or that create certain functions. So like many of the different Qigong sets that you have from China, they create different energetic functions in the energy body. And they, they again, they're part of the activation process like we talked about before, that we had healing, then we have activation, then we have stabilization. Mm-hmm. The actual then movement of the energy activates something. Or in the case of biosignatures, it restores the correct energy movement inside the system of the body using yeah. the correct energy pattern of that flow. Yeah. So what is disease then? Well, disease, <laughs> that becomes another larger topic. There's actually a section on that in the advanced training of biogeometry. But in dealing with it in a very short frame, one aspect of this is that we have lost the correct energy circulation that created the function of that part of the body to begin with. And at a deeper metaphysical level, it means that we've lost a resonance between the health-giving source at a higher level of what comes into the body. We're no longer connected to it. We're no longer resonating with it. Um, we got to reconnect with it. It's like stuck. It's dormant. And so that's why this the healing is very important. But again, it's to become whole again. The energy circulations are back. We're reconnected to those larger metaphysical levels. I mean, why is cardiac disease one of the the biggest killers in the West today. Broken hearts. Exactly. Everybody's got a broken heart. Everybody's got an armored heart that they hold rigid. I mean, Mm -hmm. I do a lot of, I've done a lot of body work with people in a way that's like energetic body work. This was a natural thing for me. Mm -hmm. And, And so what you find when you're palpating around both the person's front heart center and their back heart center, where the more subconscious stuff is, Mm-hmm. is the amount of rigidity people have there is incredible. Now, let me just throw in something here that might be of interest. So in the Chinese tradition, they understand that there's three major elixir fields in the body, three major alchemical fields in the body. Mm-hmm. And so one is in the head, they call it the upper elixir field or the upper dantian. And that's where we work on our consciousness. Then there is the middle elixir field that's around our heart and our lungs. And that's related to our feeling function. Okay. And rhythmic processes in life. And then at the lower abdomen is the lower dantian. Now, the only safe place to store energy, like dynamic life energy in the body out of these three, is the lower dantian. It's not safe to store it in the head. It's not Mm -hmm. safe to store it in the heart. That'll create migraines. That'll create heart palpitations. The only place to store the really powerful energy in the body is the lower abdomen. And that's like a battery in the body. That's where we had the navel, right? Everything we took in from the mother 
came in through the navel. And so the lower abdomen, all the metabolic processes there, all the sexual energy generation, that's all lower abdomen stuff. So one thing that you'll find, just like you find the armoring around the heart, is something that's really impactful for a lot of people. I've done a lot of work with women on this, is in the lower abdomen, you'll find that for a lot of women to protect themselves from too much aggressive energy, particularly from men coming toward them sexually, or other grasping things toward them, they armor the lower abdomen to a degree that they're not even aware of. They don't know how armored and rigid they're holding the lower abdomen because it's such an intrinsic state. It may have happened in childhood or it may have happened around puberty when they started to get attention, but it's like something that holds back the dynamic pulsation of the life force in the abdomen. It can be true for men and women, but it's particularly significant for women. Would because that? Oh, it's, it's, you can simply feel it. You can put okay. your hands on the abdomen and feel the rigidity okay. that's there. Now, what a lot of women do subconsciously to avoid that area of being stimulated is that if you start to touch them in the lower abdomen, they'll say, stop, it tickles. But the tickle response is a defensive mechanism. And if you start to actually loosen up all of the, the fascial tissue and things in the lower abdomen, it has incredibly powerful effects for the whole energy system and the psychology. And for women, this is one of the most wow. important things they can do is open up the lower abdominal energy, soften it, allow it to pulsate again. And then the amount of dynamic energy generation in the female body is incredible. Mm -hmm. What's um what's a practice? Because maybe not everyone can do this. I'm not saying I'm the best, but I can definitely energy is my field of information. Like that's yeah. how I, that's how I sense things. I sense coherence and frequency with someone. I, I have three EMF reducers in my house. I took the Wi-Fi out of my bedroom. Like that's just something I'm sensitive to. Yes. So if we were able to energetically sort of tap into each chakra, what is, and we can feel whether or not it feels tight or wh whatever information we're getting, how can we approach and maybe I'm not even directing it towards the right places, but you're talking about the lower abdomen and I start thinking about sacral, solar plexus, mm -hmm. all of the chakras. So, and some people are very blocked in their throat chakra. So what, if we went through them, is there something that we can do to um, loosen it to get yes. it to flow? So with what I was talking about the lower abdomen, a lot of this is like myofascial release. A lot of this is, is like actual physical opening okay. up the the ability of the, the flesh the muscle sure. to be soft and mobile and pulsating again right. but behind that again at the next energy layer behind that then you've got the chakras the meridians things like that okay. so what i would mention just very briefly as one of the most important of all exercises because it allows you not only to open up the energy in the center it also allows you to become aware of the actual spiritual power that's held in any location in the body, any chakra, any acupuncture point, is the basic energy movement that I teach very briefly in the uh, Gaia series, and I teach in more detail in other courses, which is what I refer to as zero-point centering mm -hmm. and radiance. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a sphere, and the sphere is losing air, and it's collapsing into its own center, mm -hmm. becomes a point, and mm -hmm. it just the point gets smaller and smaller. It's, it's going into the center of the center of the center, mm -hmm. constantly shrieking. 
This is related to the movement of the planes as well. This is explained very well in Egyptian biogeometry. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea is that normally when we are needing to understand the world around us and navigate safely in a physical world, all of our attention from our senses is going outward. It's going outward in a sphere of information around the body to make sure I'm not hit by a truck or whatever it is. But if you're going to become aware of things in the inner landscape, aware of the spiritual reality, the energetic reality, instead of the awareness going outward, it needs to go inward. So, for example, you could put your attention at the Ajna center, which is between the eyebrows, slightly inside the skull. Mm -hmm. This was a particular system I, I learned from Samuel Sagan at the Clair Vision School in Australia. But it's really a universal pattern that uh, is understood by many traditions because it's based on a sacred geometry archetype. And that is, you put your attention in any energy center of the body. We'll just say Ajna as an example. Okay. But it could be the lower abdomen, it could be the sacral center, so plexus, whatever. You put your attention there and you go inside. As you move from the physical plane awareness, you then move into the awareness of the vibrational state of what we might call the etheric or the chi or ki or prana. That's the next level beyond the physical. It's the dynamic life force. And then your awareness the will shift. body as well, the, the Egyptians. Exactly. The, they talk about the ka body, the, the energetic field around you. It's exactly the ka body. Exactly. And so all the traditions had a name for it. Yeah. And so as you move into it, you are shifting your awareness of it to, to modality where the etheric shiki prana ka is experienced as vibration or tingling or density or pressure or mm -hmm. hot and cold. These are all sensations inside the energy body. Right. And so when you feel that, again, it could be at any energy center, mm -hmm. you then move all of your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of the center of what you feel. Mm. And as you do that, you're actually moving through the planes. Now, again, this is best described in Egyptian biogeometry, which talks about how the planes are assembled outside of our body in a series of layers, but also inside of our body in a series of layers. Mm. So as you're going into the interior, you go from the physical awareness outward to now going in at the vibrational. You feel the vibrational. You go into the center of the center of center of whatever you feel because you don't want to have it be an abstract thought form out here. You want to mm -hmm. feel it in your body. That's mm -hmm. the only way it's going to work. <laughs> and then when you go deeper into it, you then get to the astral layer. That's the first level of consciousness. Now, rather than feeling the vibration, density, pressure, you become aware of light and color. That becomes the the modality of the astral plane. Mm -hmm. And then you keep going into the center of the center of the center. And what will happen is you go through all the planes until you reach the absolute center, which is the divine plane. Divine plane is in the absolute center of everything. And so as you've moved all the energy and tension into the center of the center of the center of this place in your energy body, when you touch the divine plane, it activates it. When you've moved into the absolute center with your energy and attention, it's like when you namaste recognize the divine in the other person, and in your seeing the divine in the other person, you're actually activating it. Mm. And so when you move your attention tangibly into the center of the center, it builds up energy, you touch the divine center. What happens then is it activates it, and now the energy begins to flood outward, and it mm -hmm. becomes an illuminated sphere of light around the head. 
Mm, so that's where you see all these pictures in classical traditions about like an illuminated sphere around the head of the initiates, or they have a whole mm -hmm. illuminated energy field, but they don't tell you how to activate it. Right, right. Uh, they just like I feel like in in history they would just say it's like a crown. Yeah, uh, but they're not telling you because they probably didn't know what the actual initiation practices were. So this is one of the most important practices of creation. Everything wow. came from the one, from the. They say in physics it's the singularity, right? The singularity right, right. is an infinitesimal point in space, zero dimensional. And then that expanded outward, like in the Big Bang, to create the space-time enclosure yeah. of this world that, that we live in. But the, the cosmological movement is from that center outward and then back from the expanse back into the center. From like seven and, back around again to one, or <laughs> it, it, yes, the cycle will always repeat. But that's the whole thing. This is love, right? We're getting back to the one, freedom, freedom. love, freedom. So and, I do have a, like a question because of the uh, you're such a your awareness for the energy and what's really happening. So when I picture energy coming up my spine and into my head, into the pineal gland, I if I focus there, it is like, it almost is like a headache. It's like a, it feels like incredible heat. Yes. And what is happening? So this is something very important. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, we had a lot of Indian gurus coming to the United States and teaching people things like Kundalini meditations mm -hmm. to, to blast the Kundalini up the spine to the top of the head. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this is that first of all, the energy body isn't cleansed enough, like they were doing the ashrams for decades, mm -hmm. then it can be what's called a diverted rising, and the energy can go into a secondary channel, which doesn't have the ability to hold that level of voltage. But mm -hmm. the other problem with it is that raising the kundalini all the way to the crown of the head would be used by some other traditions, like the Tibetans in the Palhua practice, as a method of conscious death or excarnation. You oh. shoot the pearl of your spiritual self out of the head and it's a conscious form of excarnation. Now, because we're only given fragments of information today, we don't always know how all these practices fit together. And so what can happen is that when we get the spinal energy rising up, when we get activations of centers in the head, particularly on the pineal pituitary, like I said, it's not safe to store the energy in the head. It's not safe to store the energy in the chest. It's only safe to store it in the lower abdomen. That's just the way the body is designed. The lower body, the lower abdomen is the battery. It's the life force enclosure in the body. Mm. This is for consciousness. This is for feeling. The mm. life force vibration, that's for the lower abdomen. But we're so neurotic about the lower abdomen and sexual stuff in our culture. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. But that's where the energy needs to get stored. And so in the 1980s, I mentioned before that the deeper Taoist work uh, for inner alchemy began to be released to the public for the first time, been very secret before. So one of the things that they did that helped a lot of people with this problem is they taught people the idea of the microcosmic orbit. So the microcosmic orbit is that there is a channel of energy running up your spine that in Chinese medicine is called the dew meridian or the governing vessel. Mm -hmm. There's another channel that runs up the midline of the front of your body that's called the conception vessel or the ren meridian. And the two of these are meant to link together and then become a flow of energy. Mm -hmm. Now, to do that, you need to touch the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth because mm -hmm. this meridian coming up here terminates at the tip of the tongue. Mm 
Mm. And the tongue also acts like an electrical conductor. That's mm. why in sex and things that that the tongue is such a powerful stimulator. It has an electrical mm. charge to it. Right. So when you plug the tip of the tongue into the roof of the mouth, it then connects to the energy coming up the spine, coming over the top of the head, and then to the upper palate. That's where that terminates, in the upper mm. palate of the mouth. Touching the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth, now you're connecting the front and the back channels together, and you let the energy then run down the front channel until it begins to circulate up the spine, down the front. Now, what this does is it allows you to not build up the energy yeah. that is coming from the spine to the head. It's meant to circulate. If it gets mm. jammed up up there, it leads to what's called kundalini sickness, where mm. you have too much tension and pressure in the head. Yeah. It's meant to be circulated. So after you circulate it up the spine, mm. down the front, this is just a very simple explanation of Makes what can have then. other aspects to it, is you then, when you're finishing that practice, is you start to make a vortex movement at a level below the navel in the lower abdomen, about an inch and a half below the navel in the center of the body. Okay. And that's a, a place that when you make a vortex movement there, you can pull all that energy in and store it in your internal battery where it's safe in the lower abdomen. Uh, so it comes up your spine into the to the tongue. Now the tongue touches the roof, roof of, the of mouth. your mouth, which connects to the front energy channel. So then you send it back down mm -hmm. into a vortex that essentially charges your body with more energy. That's right. There's a type of physiological energetic battery in the lower abdomen. Hmm. This provides, it can hold a lot of charge. And then we do that. So you actually circulate it. This is a very quick explanation of a larger process. But you circulate it multiple times, up the spine, down the front, so mm -hmm. that the whole flow is happening. Yep. But then if you want to end the practice by making sure the energy is ending up somewhere beneficial, Got you create it. the vortex to hold the energy in the lower abdomen so it Got doesn't it. build up in the head, so it doesn't build up in the chest. Because we need to open up the pineal gland, absolutely, for higher consciousness. We mm -hmm. need to open up the heart chakra, absolutely, for mm -hmm. higher consciousness. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not a place that we can store the dynamic energy. Every one of these three elixir fields has its own function. And once we begin, again, see it in context. When you understand the bigger context, everything yeah. fits into place. It, just your explanation, you're so extremely articulate and um, so intelligent that it's, you know, things just land so well because you understand it so well. So thank you. Um, okay, let's try and wrap up, even though, you know, I could absolutely go on and on. As you see, my pure curiosity is just I've abandoned all my like notes and stuff. I'm this is just my pure curiosity carrying on with what your answers are. What can people do to explore biogeometry at um, an entry level or um, uh, uh, at, a, at, a, at a level that we can start accessing and using so that we can understand ourselves and, and improve the energetic structure of, of our bodies and how it all works. And then also I'm curious where to go next with the Rosicrucian order, because I, I know we didn't talk about it a lot, but, but I, I find that very fascinating. I find the, the lessons within it that you've shared and that I've sort of touched in other ways to be um, really powerful. So let's be clear. Most of what we talked about today is along the lines of what I teach in spiritual science or in vibrational science. Okay. And I have a, a series of courses on my website, vesica.org. And a vesica with a V at the beginning, V-E-S-I-C-A. Like is, the Vesica Pisces? Uh, exactly. It's where you get two opposite polarities 
in the two circles, they perfectly overlap, creating an almond-shaped enclosure. And again, like we talked about before, that's where the magic happened. The two opposite polarities where they overlap becomes the portal in the center. That's actually in the iconography of, of the Institute with the, the vesica form. So at vesica.org, I have the spiritual science and the vibrational science courses related to most of what we talked about here. Okay. I also am very fortunate to be able to teach the biogeometry work developed by my friend, Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt. And so we offered that. The, the other courses I offer are all online courses. You just do them at your own time. There's not a live component. They're just there for your own study when you have the time to do it. The spiritual the sciences. The spiritual science and the okay. vibrational science work. Spiritual okay. sciences that work more focused on developing the consciousness. Vibrational okay. science more in developing the energy body. Okay. And being able to work with energies in and around us. Okay. Then the biogeometry is Dr. Kareem's work, which is teaching nature's own design language, mm -hmm. which is how shape, sound, color, motion, number, angle, proportion can create specific energetics that we can use to balance our homes, our offices, and at a higher level within our own energy system and activate the energy system, yeah. as well as balancing with biosignatures and things like that. Yeah. So that's also listed on our website, vesica.org. And this class has a pre-recorded component and a live component where people will join us for mm -hmm. three days on a weekend in a row, three weekends in a row for one day each weekend. And there's uh, four hours where we have practice reviews of things I've taught them in the class. We'll give them a summary. We'll send them off to coaches to work with, to ask any questions they have, etc. So all of this is available through my website, vesica.org, as uh, structured courses that can be taken. And ask about the Rosicrucians, the Rosicrucian work is primarily in the spiritual science side. I always tell people to start with essential teachings and practices of spiritual science, because that gives you some of these fundamentals I talked about, like the receptive and active meditation and things like that. Uh, but I also have a course that's specifically about the Rosicrucian work, which is... Uh, called the, the True Rosicrucian Tradition. And it's got multiple courses that go into a lot of the deeper Rosicrucian knowledge. And that's a, one of my favorite topics. So I always love talking about that. No, okay. I mean, I hope that I didn't use too much of your time up for you to um, say no when I ask you to do this again. But I'd love to dive into that another time because I, I, find, I find that work to be, it's very magical. Wonderful. I would I would absolutely love to talk with you again specifically about the Rosicrucian tradition because it's really, in a sense, a modern expression of the Egyptian and like a modern cultural context. It has mm -hmm. so much in it. And uh, I'd also love to talk with you sometime about the biogeometry because that's a huge topic in itself and it really makes available to us what was previously very hidden knowledge and practices from the ancient Egyptian temple science, but in a modern context where it's easier to understand and apply. Sure, sure, absolutely. I, I, I was totally on my list of questions. Was like, what about a house and like <laughs> ley lines and energy grids and the the geometry and like shape of the house and like should I have a friend who does crystal grids underneath houses and like there's so many places to go, which is why I struggled so much with like where to go with all of my uh with with the interview today. But it was so enlightening and so fascinating, and hopefully it's got people. Uh, it has people inspired and motivated to dive into more of your work and go to your website and do the courses. And I sure do. And, you know, be ready for the next interview. So thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.